0: Pastor Tom already kind of got you primed and ready. Steve Kennedy already got you primed and ready. So you should be all warmed up, right? So when I say, he is risen, now I see the numbers out here, and I know my ears should be hurting a little bit more. So come on now, let's get the air in your lungs ready. He is risen. There it is. I love it. Good job. Yeah. You know, we say that, and, you know, different from church to church, everybody has their maybe their traditions. That is a tradition for Independent Bible Church. I love that tradition. Guess what? It's not just reserved for Easter Sunday, by the way, because every single day we live and celebrate a resurrected Savior, Yes, we make a point in time to really draw specific focus to it, it, but we we celebrate a risen Savior. I love what our brother Brad Teal always says, we don't serve a, a dead Savior. He didn't just stay dead. We serve a risen Savior. And more specifically, around this time, we celebrate God's redemption of people through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, you might ask the question, or you might wonder, or we might have even differing definitions. What does it mean to redeem, or what is redemption? Commonly, or in our probably common-day vernacular, we think of redemption as something to be bought, something to be purchased, perhaps, maybe even traded in in exchange for something else altogether. But on a spiritual level, In a spiritual sense, redemption means, well, let me explain what redemption means by way of a story. We all like stories, right? I love stories. Let me tell you a story. And I'm not just talking about any story. I'm talking about the story. The story that is above all other stories. The story that trumps every single other story or movie or book or whatever that you can think of at this moment. I want to tell you a story that actually includes your story, your life, your experience. I want to tell you a story of how God is supernaturally involved in every little detail of history past. I want to tell you a story how God is supernaturally involved in every single detail of your life right now. I want to tell you a story of how God is supernaturally sovereign and involved in every detail of the future. I'm actually convinced of this, and I hope you are by the end of it, that the only way that you and I can grasp the significance of Easter is by viewing Easter through the lens of God's redemption through Jesus Christ. And to understand this, we need to start at the very beginning. So you ready? Yeah. Kids, are you ready? Yeah. Come on, kids, I wanna hear you. Yeah. yeah, how about over here, kids? Yeah. All right, Woo! high pitch, love that. Adults, are you Ready? Yeah, there we go. Okay, we're gonna start this story from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, buckle your seatbelts. We're going all the way to Revelation. Hope you brought a snack lunch. Maybe five loaves and two fishes, I don't know. Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything. Isn't that incredible? It didn't just kind of morph into some kind of accidental being. God is the source, the origin by all creation. He shines light out of darkness. Heaven and earth are created. Dry land, the universe, the stars, the sun, sea life, and birds, land animals, male and female. And guess what? Everything that God created was what? What else? Even Africa. That's right. He created everything. Everything. Okay, yes. All right. <laughs> My kids are all involved with this message. This is great. God created everything, and guess what? Everything that God created was. Yeah. And you know what good means in a divine sense? It means it's perfect. You know, we see we use good as kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing good, meaning I'm like not great, but I'm not terrible. No, God in the divine sense and a supernatural definition of good, it is perfect, as perfect as we can even imagine. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we see that Adam and Eve are named and they're commissioned to be stewards over God's creation. And here's the incredible thing. Adam and Eve had uninhibited fellowship with God Almighty. I can't even scratch the surface or begin to fathom I mean, yes, we do in some sense because of the spirit that indwells all believers in Jesus Christ, but God, or Adam and Eve, walked and fellowshiped and talked with God, uninhibited access. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3. You see how slow I'm going, right? We get a lot of chapters to go. Genesis chapter 3, this character, this animal appears in the form of a serpent and we, and he begins to talk, which alludes to a, a backstory that we see kind of intertwined through Scripture and other, and other, and other writings. And what we see is that we also see that God, before He created this, also created an angelic realm—angels, thousands, myriads of angels—and they were serving alongside God Almighty. As the backstory unfolds, we see that Satan, or Lucifer, was his name. He was actually good. He was the, God, God's right-hand angel, so to speak. And one day, he had the audacity to think, I think I could be like God. In fact, I can be like God. And because of his pride and what pride ultimately led to a rebellion, we see that God cast him out of his presence And prepared a place of eternal punishment for Lucifer and those angels that followed him. But that punishment is not fully enacted yet. And so we pick up in Genesis chapter 3, where Satan presents himself in the form of his servant and deceives Eve... Now, we have to give Eve a little credit here because Adam was right with her, standing beside her saying absolutely nothing. So we don't throw Eve under the bus because Adam is silent. And we see how this, uh, this unfolds for us. The serpent convinces ultimately that Adam and Eve cannot really trust God. Eve, Adam, you, you re- did God really say those things? Don't you know that he's actually withholding from you? Don't you know that God is actually not for you? That he's actually not a good God because he's withholding from you? He is a good God, I know. But you know what? The enemy deceived Adam and Eve, just like we can be deceived. And the moment that Adam and Eve fell into temptation and ate of the fruit that was forbidden from the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, everything changed. What was once perfect and glorious was now negatively corrupted and influenced. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they were kicked out of the garden. And that relationship that they experienced with God in an uninhibited manner was now severed. We see that the first death took place as God had to kill an animal in order to clothe both Adam and Eve, and now there's consequences because of the rebellion and sin. We see that there's death and there's pain, pain in childbirth, sickness, agricultural difficulties. The point is, things are no longer as God intended from in the first place, and that relationship with God that He created for us to experience. Has been torn apart. Question that we must ask at this juncture is this What hope does the human race have? Can God make things right again? Yeah. Will God make things right again? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Pastor's <with> kids. <laughs> How will humanity be restored into relationship with God after being separated from Him because of sin? Well, brothers and sisters, if you don't believe it now, may I say to you that God has a plan. He had a plan then, and he continues to have a plan to this day. He gives a promise. So even though in his discipline, because as the Scripture tells us, he disciplines those whom he loves, even in his discipline, he also offers a promise of deliverance and redemption. Listen to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When you understand exhaustively how that is intertwined all throughout Old Testament and New Testament, you realize this is the first time the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached. This is the first gospel So, in the midst of tragedy and despair and separation, God promises to make right what has gone horribly wrong, to mend what has been torn apart. He promises to redeem that which was lost. But we know ourselves. We know that we're kind of fickle people, right? Yeah, Basically when you when you look at it you're like, okay, this is good news. God's gonna make everything right. He's gonna redeem what's been broken. This is awesome. And then you look at the landscape of human history and you go, is God really gonna redeem the human race? (laughs) They're listening. (laughs) This is amazing. Is God really going to redeem the human race? I mean after all it seems as though people no matter how much many chances God gives they keep messing it up. They keep screwing it up. Well we get to Genesis chapter 4. I know we're going very slow right now. We'll pick up the pace in a second. Cain kills his brother which is the first murder. And why did he do this? Because God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. To understand what was really transpiring, the reason why Cain, the reason why Cain's sacrifice was rejected by God is because Cain approached God on his terms, whereas Abel approached God on God's terms. Well, things go from bad to worse very quickly. And because of that, God has to kind of press the reset button on his creation, and he tells Noah. At that time, the only righteous man on the face of the earth saying, I'm going to restart everything. There's going to be a global, uh, a flood of global proportions here. Of course, nobody has that even fathom what God God is telling Noah, let alone know what Noah is telling people. And he builds this massive ark and God floods the earth. And the only family on the face of the earth is, guess what? Noah and his family. Eight people. So you think we're finally like, okay, fresh start, clean slate, here we go, Right? Well, that didn't take long because they get off on dry land. Things begin to blossom and bloom again, resuming life as it was intended. Noah gets drunk. Ham is cursed. And the only family on the earth brings it in and messes it up again. But thankfully, God is a very patient God. Genesis chapter 12 God calls this guy named Abram, who later becomes Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. In fact, through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Again, another gospel promise, another good news promise. And so this is really glorious news, and God God fulfills his promises initially. We see that Abraham miraculously has a a promised child, And eventually, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and eventually there are millions of Israelites all finding their kind of origin at Abraham. And so God is already multiplying and fulfilling his promise. And you think, okay, it's happening. Except they get enslaved by the Egyptians and they're not able to reap God's blessing and promise. But then he raises up a deliverer named Moses, and Moses comes in and he leads the people out of Egypt to the promised land, God wipes out the Egyptian army, and everything is ready to kind of pick up where it left off, they send in spies to scout out the land, and guess what, they're fearful, only two, Joshua and Caleb, come back on, yeah, let's take it, this is awesome, this is good land. Everybody else is like, no, we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. We cannot touch this. We don't want to go in. And because of their unfaithfulness, because of their lack of trust in the Lord, because of their rebellion, God causes them to wander in the desert for 40 more years until that generation dies off. Well, Moses dies. Joshua is raised up to lead the people in the promised land, okay, here we go. They come in. Jericho, Jericho is a victory of all victories, the most unorthodox Uh, military strategy ever, singing, dancing, praising God. Everything crumbles down. It's amazing. Everybody is is stricken with fear. They go into the promised land. They take conquests. You think as everything's finally happening, right? Well, we get to the judges. The judges, like Samson and Gideon and Deborah these are people that God raised up for very specific times because here's the life cycle of Israel at this time. And by the way, it's not changed today. You see, the life cycle in the Judges period for Israel, and that continues on even to this day, is that when we are in a place of comfort and peace and rest, our, our nature tends to wander to become less dependent on God, to become more self-serving than others serving. And so in our comfort and in our lack of dependence on God, we begin, what does the hymn say, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's what human nature does, our fallen human nature does every single time. And that's what happened in the people of Israel. And because of their wandering, because they disobeyed God, because generations were coming up and didn't even know God, God in His loving discipline allowed foreign oppression to come in and to cause great distress for the people of Israel. So much so that they'd finally come to their wits end and cry out to God for deliverance and repent of their ways, and then God promises to hear them, and he'd come in, and he'd redeem them, and he'd up a deliverer. The deliverer would make everything right again. Ah, finally, peace at last. Until the judge died, and then it went all over again. And thousands of years later, it's been doing the same thing. Well, Israel finally decides they want a king like everyone else. And God says, not a good idea. Here's the reality of having a king. But no, we want kings like all the other nations. And so God says to Samuel, his prophet, give them what they want. And God raises up King Saul, who becomes disobedient. Then we see David, which he's a good king. He's a man after God's own heart. And then there's his son Solomon, who's disobedient, even though at that time he was the wisest man on the earth. And then after Solomon, the the nation of Israel splits. There's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, guess what, has no good kings. There are none that follow after God. And the southern kingdom only has about half of good kings. And almost, it literally went back and forth. Good king, bad king. Good king, bad king. And during that time, God always raised up prophets Prophets that would be that would represent God to the people and speak on behalf of God to the people, calling them to repentance, calling them to, to turn from their ways, calling him to, to, to worship on God's terms. Yet rarely did people listen. And after the prophet Malachi, we see that it goes silent. Malachi is the last prophet. And there's over 400 years of no one representing God. There's no one calling people to attention. There's no one calling people to repentance. And after over 400 years, finally, God responds. The prophecies are now coming to pass, they are now being fulfilled. And they're being fulfilled by this person who comes on the scene, and his name is Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus comes on the scene as God's answer to redeem and to reconcile humanity, to restore and to make right what was destroyed and corrupted by sin. Of course, there's a big question in people's mind, who is this Jesus? It's been silent for 400 years. Maybe we've just kind of gotten used to the way things are. Who is this person, Jesus? Yes, we know the prophecies. We have a certain idea or expectation of what should happen or who should come. But who is this Jesus? Some say he's a prophet. Some say he's just a good person with a good moral compass to follow. But the Bible says that he is Emmanuel, God with us. John the Apostle says this in Revelation 22, he's the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Isaiah the prophet says that there is no God beside him. Paul the Apostle says in Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. In fact, the fullness of deity dwells bodily in the person of Jesus Christ. Even the Father acknowledges when Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist, a voice from the heavens saying, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. The point is this. Regardless of what people think about this person named Jesus, the the scriptures tell us that Jesus is God. And Jesus had to be God. Because only God can make us acceptable to God. Only God could pay the necessary price for our sin. This is why John the Baptist so emphatically proclaimed about Jesus. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, Jesus is the perfect sacrificial lamb. He's the only acceptable sacrifice to remove the stain of guilt and to make us innocent before a holy God. Paul the Apostle says this in Colossians, that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses and sinful nature, and we were lost in our ways. But God, there's the big but God moment, right? But God made us alive together with Him. And He nailed to the cross all the charges that were held against us. In other words, whatever Satan meant for evil, God always ordained for good. You remember that promise back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? The first gospel. You see, God is fulfilling His promise through Jesus Christ. Now, if the story were to end there, this would be kind of good news. If the story were to end there that Jesus died for our sins, here's the reality of that scenario Yes, we would be guiltless and innocent before God, and that is something that we need to come back to regularly. We need to understand how God justified us before the Father by His sacrifice on a cross. We need to understand and accept, because it's hard for us human beings to do, that somehow God still views me as innocent and holy and blameless and guiltless in spite of how screwed up I am. That's amazing news, isn't it? I know myself. God knows me better than I know myself. And he says, I love you, and you are free. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. I can't get over it. I hope I never get over it. I hope none of us get over that. But if the story were to end there, here's the reality. We would still be dead. We would still die. Thankfully, the story does not end there. Yes, Jesus died, and he conquered the power of sin and death. He died, and he took care of our sin condition that ultimately led us to eternal punishment. But here's the good news, brothers and sisters. He did not stay dead. Jesus is alive. We've been singing about that. We've been proclaiming that to one another. He is alive. He's not a a dead Savior. He's a living Savior, And as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Jesus had to be resurrected. Otherwise, everything we do right now is in vain. It is worthless. It is a waste of time. So you remember that question I asked at the very beginning or a series of questions I asked. How is God going to save the human race? How is God going to redeem humanity from the curse of sin? How is God going to restore that relationship that once existed between God and people? And the answer is, brothers and sisters, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the very beginning, that was God's plan all along. Jesus came for the purpose of dying to save us from our sins The blood of Jesus purchased us from the enslaving power of sin and made us innocent before God. And at the same time, on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead, saving us to eternal life. In other words, it's the resurrection of Jesus that guarantees your resurrection one day. Hallelujah. And that is why we have reason to celebrate You see, as even the, as the scripture was read, we see that all of scripture was all about Jesus in the first place. Jesus even acknowledged that in Luke 24. We see that, he says, the prophets, the Psalms, the wisdom literature, the law of Moses, he says, it's all about me. It always has been and it always will be. When you look at the Passover supper that was initiated in the book of Exodus, that wasn't just a random observance. That was all a foreshadow, a preparation of things to come. It was a Passover meal to commemorate something that Jesus would ultimately fulfill in His body and in His death and in His resurrection. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we see that God, this was God's sovereign plan from the very beginning. As the worship team comes on forward right now, was that subtle enough? <laughs> I just want to say this as they come up as we, before we close in a final song. When you think about what this means to my life, what this means to your life, let me just say this. You are a part of a larger story. Your life, your story, your journey, your little blip on the Richter scale of life You are part of a much larger story. It is God's story. You know, it's easy to live life as if it revolves around us. And of course, we would not necessarily admit that verbally, but maybe our life portrays something differently. But the fact is, life is all about God. It's all about Jesus Christ. It always has been and it always will be. And your life is a small part of a larger story of the human race, and especially how God is redeeming and rescuing and delivering us from the sin plagued lives that so, that so plague us in this life. And He promises to redeem us and to glorify us for the glory of God the Father. This is why we have reason to celebrate. This is why we have reason to rejoice. But you know what, brothers and sisters? Jesus left, he says, I've given you my spirit, but I'm coming back. Do you know that Jesus Christ is coming back? Coming back on a kind of very different mission to, to complete what he has begun. He's coming back at a day and an hour that we have no idea. The question in our minds that I pray never stops percolating in your heart and mind is this Am I ready? Am I ready for the imminent return of Jesus Christ? Are you ready?